people love you and you win. And when your son looks at you and says, mama, look, you won. Bullies don't win. And I no. said, baby, they don't. Because we're gonna go in there, we're gonna impeach the motherfucker. That was Rashida Tlaib speaking at a Move On event just hours before being sworn in as a new congresswoman from Michigan. Her comments caused a bit of a stir, instantly labeling her as one of the new progressive firebrands in the Democratic House. But Tlaib hasn't backed down. She's introduced a resolution to impeach the president, a goal that's getting lots more attention these days in the wake of the president's moves to stonewall congressional oversight, ignore subpoenas, and claim executive privilege over the entire Robert Mueller report. Has the needle moved on impeachment? We'll talk to Congresswoman Tlaib about that and other issues, including our controversial views on the Middle East. And we'll hear from Peter Baker, the chief White House correspondent for The New York Times, about the update he's done to his book on Barack Obama's presidency, including Obama's very strange encounter with his successor, Donald Trump, on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isagoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So, uh, in one sense, it's going to be a, a bit refreshing to hear from a House Democrat who does not equivocate about what she thinks the House should do about Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, you know, you referred to her as one of the House firebrands, uh, yeah. and that she is. Look, Rashida Tlaib, AOC, who we had on this podcast, Representative Omar... All of them represent this kind of grassroots fire out there, and that is going to be putting a lot of pressure on the House Democratic leadership. Well, it's not going to be. It is putting a lot of pressure. You could see the sort of change in tone, change in rhetoric, but from the House leadership about whether to begin impeachment proceedings against the president in light of the very damning details in the Mueller report. But more than that, sort of Trump basically giving the finger to the very concept of congressional oversight, not going to comply with subpoenas, invoking executive privilege, preventing people from testifying. And it really puts the Democratic leadership in the House in a bind right. because Maybe, yeah. they don't want to impeach because it's you know, it almost certainly not going to result in Trump's removal from office. But if you don't do anything, yeah. what's the For message those- you're sending? For those who favor going ahead with impeachment or at least impeachment proceedings, this allows them to say there is a constitutional confrontation, maybe not a crisis yet, but a constitutional confrontation that is forcing us to do this. And the argument that I've heard is to subpoena the Mueller report, that's, you know, you get to the courts, the Trump administration can play that out for the rest of the it's administration. That's just not going to happen. For months. And then, then there will be a fight over executive privilege, and, and at least the Trump administration can make some plausible arguments along those lines. But if it's in the context of an impeachment proceeding, which is 
part of Congress's constitutional authority written into the Constitution, then at least plausibly it gives them an argument that to go forward with this, we need documents. We need evidence. We right. need information. So I'm not saying that this is not a, a strategy without risks, but it does give them a little more, a better, a stronger argument to go forward. Well, it with seems this. to me that once you begin an impeachment proceeding, you have to immediately start thinking about how, what the end game is. Because if you begin a proceeding and then you don't impeach, you know, that's a call you're going to have to make, which is going to be very unpopular with your base. Well, As look, I mean, the impeachment proceedings are akin to a grand jury investigation. Right. When the House of Representatives actually votes to impeach, that would be the grand jury indictment. So if you're making the criminal analogy, this happens in our criminal justice system all the time, that there are grand jury investigations that do not end up in bringing criminal charges. And that's not even talking about a trial and conviction, which would have to happen in the Senate and would never happen. So I think that's how Democrats are, some Democrats are beginning to think about this. I get it, the optics are different in this kind of political context, but I think you're beginning to see uh, kind of a sea change in, in yeah. how this is being Although thought I about. Although I don't think the subpoenaing the Mueller report, which is what they're holding Barr in contempt for, for not turning it over, that doesn't seem like a political winner to me. I mean, for one thing, do they really think that the full report is going to be different than what Mueller has already delivered. Mueller has seen all the evidence. He's written a report. Right. We've seen more than yeah. 90% of it. Right. It's hard to imagine that there's some bombshell in the redacted portions that Mueller somehow excluded no, from his no, report. No, I totally agree with that. Yeah. I, think there, I think there has to be a broader argument right. that has to do with separation of powers. It has to do with Congress's, their role to conduct oversight of the administration. And that goes to not just a Mueller report, it goes to Mueller's testifying, it goes to uh, McGahn, McGahn testifying. testifying. It goes, and frankly, it's going to also go to the, t the tax releases as well, all of these issues, because the administration has taken this unprecedented position that they're not going to cooperate with any investigations right. at all. All right. Well, let's get the perspective of the congresswoman who has no hesitation in saying she wants Donald Trump impeached. We're here in the office of Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib from Michigan. Congresswoman, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you for having me. Okay, we're gonna just warp speed, tell your life story in, uh, in less than a minute here. <laughs> okay, daughter of Palestinian immigrants, oldest of 14 children, born and raised in Detroit. Your father worked on the Ford Motor Company assembly plant. You attended public high schools, you're a lawyer, and you spent three terms in the state legislature before running for John Conyers' uh, seat, 13th District. Yes. You came here to Washington to shake things up. How's it going? Uh, I, th I think we shook things up. <laughs> uh, yep, we hit the ground running. And I say we because this is a pretty incredibly diverse, just you know, bold class, many of which have never served in office before, many of which, you know, didn't run to be first of anything. They really ran uh, because they wanted to fight for something, fight for change. And they felt this calling for public service. But I love it. I love that um, I get to serve with real people. You know, um, one of my colleagues is a survivor of domestic violence. 
Another had never had health insurance until she got here. So many, even yesterday, hearing my colleague, Representative Alyssa Slotkin, lose her mother because of you know the fact that she had pre-existing condition and how that created barriers for her to get access to health care. All of these women, especially the women, um, have come with these truly authentic, real-life stories and challenges. You know, I only hope and will continue to fight to make sure that they still, you know, that we all stay grounded and very much rooted in the communities we serve. So one way you're trying to shake things up is to impeach the president. And um, you made that clear. That was your intention from day one. But it does seem like the Democratic leadership, which has been extremely reluctant to go that route, may be inching towards what you wanted to do from day one. Do you sense some momentum in your efforts to begin an impeachment proceeding? Well, yesterday I was given a hard drive. This is kind of a first uh, rather than like the box, but there's 10 million signatures. 10 million people signed on and said, please, United States Congress members, hold this president accountable to the rule of law, uh, many of which are supporting the resolution I introduced to impeach the president, to look at impeachable offenses of the president of the United States. From day one, I've been... It's truly, truly eager uh, to use the checks and balances powers here. You know, a friend of mine said, you know, this past election, this wave that everybody saw, to me was a referendum. If you look at it, I mean, it was electing the jury to look at this president, to hold this president and its administration accountable. Okay, but but, right but now, let me just ask this quick, because we'll the proof is in the numbers, and you introduced that impeachment resolution. The last time I looked, you had something like seven members yeah, who but signed every, on to it. So I, I don't the, think of it as seven. I think of it as every single person represents and 650,000 people. I look at Medicare for all. I look at Green New Deal. Everybody's like, oh, you just have this many. Oh, the leadership doesn't want it. But with every movement, it doesn't happen with the introduction of something within the halls of Congress. It actually happens outside of Congress, in the streets. You saw that with the Civil Rights Movement. You saw that with the Women's Rights Movement. And so many people want to concentrate on one person, the leader of this, of, of the Speaker of the House. And that is important, obviously. But I can tell you, just like with myself and others, we want to represent our district. And so many people at home and across the country want us to do something. They want us to put country first. They don't want us constantly looking at critical strategies, but actually listening to them and saying this is out of control. We have a president that doesn't abide by the United States Constitution. He's obstructing justice. And why aren't you doing your job? Your impeachment resolution doesn't mention what you want to impeach him for. It just says begin an impeachment proceeding. So it actually lists. itemize no, what it is. No, it lists. If you look at the impeachment resolution, it lists. It says, look at the fact that after his, he, you know, so many people focused. This is, you know, I introduced this before the Mueller report came forward. So many people are focused on what happened before he took the oath of office. What I'm more concerned and what more pe- American people and the American public is concerned about is after he took the oath of office, what has he done? What has seeped into post the inauguration? And what it says, it lists. It says, look at the anti-corrupt laws in the United States Constitution. We need to look at the fact that this is the first president, all 44 before him, divested in his foreign, their foreign and domestic investments, from Carter, who uh, sold his uh, farm to others. But understand, we have a corporation running our government is right now. Is that alone an impeachable offense? I think you've said that that may be a crime, may violate the Constitution, the divestment. He took the oath of office to, hold the United State, to uphold the United States Constitution. We set a precedent when we don't say to someone that this is 
conflict of interest. This is a corridor to power. This is the most powerful position in the world. And, in you know, you got an upgraded version of pay to play. There's been over a thousand contacts between the Trump organization, mm-hmm. the businesses, and the Trump administration. So there Understand are- that people are spending thousands of dollars in the Trump Hotel in D.C., right. from T-Mobile yeah. to the Saudi Arabian government. And all of that, to me, feeds into the corruption. I, I just want to just get you to answer that specific question. Is it your view that by not divesting his corporate interests, that that would be a, an impeachable offense? Yes, if you think about it. If so I, he could have been impeached but, on day one because yes. he made it clear from I think I was very clear about that. Yeah, I think you, 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 you suggested that. I was very yes. clear about that day yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. I specific People wanted to focus on Mueller so report. People put so the much office, weight on the Mueller report. And I said, by, focus. He decided he wanted to be a public servant. He decided when he raised his hand and took the oath that he wanted to be president of the United States. That's a sacrifice you have to take is to walk away from having for-profit industry and it's complex and it's not small business. I mean, this will not be the last CEO that runs for president of the United States. And we don't hold this president accountable to the rule of law. I mean, you, you say, is that impeachable? Obviously it is. I mean, you have so you to uphold let the courts resolve whether the, uh, he's in violation of the emoluments clause because there are lawsuits. It's our responsibility in this wanna, chamber. Okay. That's article one in your idea of uh, articles of impeachment. What's article two? So one of the things that I think is really, really important to look at mm-hmm. is when you look at his exercise of powers and pardon, uh, his uh, you know, pardon powers, you look at some of the actions that he's taken in regards to immigration, all of that in many ways has been done in a way that is connected to for-profit industry. I mean, you look at the people that are making the most money off of detention and caging up children at the border is people that have, have given to the inauguration committee for the presidents. And I mean, look at that. Look at how all of the money is connected and how that corruption is feeding into it. I mean, for me, this is about investigating the article. It's about investigating specific actions. And that's why it says, I mean, if you look at the history of Nixon and so forth, it was this kind of resolution. I mean, that's what I based it on. And they introduced this resolution that says, let's look at the impeachable offenses of this current president. And that's what the process is of the committee process for us to look at all of that, not for me, but for my colleagues and for all of us to use the public process to look into it. But if you started uh, before you actually took the oath of office by saying, impeach the motherfucker, it suggests that when you say that, do you mean investigate whether he should be impeached or are you saying he should be articles of impeachment should be voted and um, he should essentially be indicted before it goes to the Senate? Look, uh, you know, my colleague, Representative Al Green, is most likely going to move forward in the articles. And I think you're going to see myself and others already eager to vote for it and to support it. And then let me tell you why. I want to go through the public process, but it's obvious he doesn't really care for the law of the land. He doesn't care to respect that we do have, you know, these checks and balances, these separation of power, the fact that this is what our responsibility is. You now have his U.S. attorney being held in contempt. Attorney General. Attorney General. I'd like to say his attorney because it's obvious that he doesn't work for the American people, but for one man. You mean like he's his personal attorney? Yes. Uh, And I think I've been very clear about that. Barr has not upheld the standard of what we think of a person that is going to protect, protect the American democracy, protect the American people. And this is why we're here. But we're also fighting for health care. 
We're also, honestly, we were fighting for campaign finance. And there's concern but, that but if think you about focus it. on impeachment, it's going to distract from the agenda heard that it. Democrats you know, campaigned yeah. on and addressed the concerns of the American people. But think about it. We're passing all of this. We're fighting for kids at the border. We su- filed subpoenas subpoenas to ask this president, give us the information of the children being caged at the border. We want their names. We want to know where they're at. Do you know where their parents are at? Mm -hmm. They haven't responded to our subpoena request. Do you understand? We can't even do our job. So if I want to investigate the big pharma and fight against the fact that right now I have a call of a woman that can't afford her insulin, if I try to do that, do you know what I have a problem with? That maybe around the corner, they're spending thousands of dollars at the Trump Hotel in D.C. or any other industry. And to me, that is the the corridor of the corruption that is happening. Because no matter what we do in this chamber, and if it's going to be tainted by the fact that this president hasn't divested, but also the fact that this president doesn't, I mean, truly believes he's above the law, then how are we supposed to get anything done in this chamber? How are we going to have the respect of the people? Let me tell you, Character flaws aside, people focus so much on that and it's distracting and all of us are getting you know, distracted on his character flaws. Look at his actions. That's what I want the committee process to do is look at these offenses that are impeachable and they're serious. Do you sense any momentum that you're when gaining you, you know, it's very interesting. We support. need to focus on people, not the members in this chamber. Let me tell you why. They don't drive what happens in this country. The people outside of the halls of Congress do. And 10 million signatures this is the most signatures that move on has ever collected in history. This is a size of 12 of our smallest states in the country. Okay, but as 10 a million people. Matter, a practical it, matter, you need the support from your fellow Democrats. And it's going to happen House. with 10 million more people signing on and 10 million more after that saying to their members, do something about this president that does that truly is acting above the law. Do something about the fact that he's an obstructionist. He will not allow us to move anything that actually impact, helps American people because to him, this is about his Trump organization, not about the American people. You're so not, what is it that, that your leadership, that Leader Pelosi doesn't get? And do you think she and, and other members of the leadership are just being overly cautious here? No, look, I think Speaker Pelosi has a viewpoint of some people in, in the country that believe what she's saying is to be true. And I have to respect that. But I also have to respect the fact that, and, and this is something she's told me personally, represent your district. She's told all of us new members, represent your district. If you represent your district, then you're doing your job. So I am representing my district here and I'm doing it in a way that's not disrespectful to her or trying to undermine what I think she truly believes in regards to how this should to proceed. But it is going to be up to the American people whether or not we're going to be at the point where we need to look at impeaching this president. Look, uh, the um, Judiciary Committee has voted to hold the Attorney General, as you mentioned, in contempt for not turning over the full Mueller report. Is that a big issue for you? I mean, you've you've read the Mueller report, ninety more than 90% of it. You, we know where he came down. Volume 2 is the most interesting. What to you report. leaps out there? And what, what more do you need to know or what more do you think your colleagues need to know to reach a judgment as to whether the president has committed obstruction of justice? Look, I think my colleagues are trying to do their best to create a transparent, honest and fair process. They just want him to come before the committee. They want to ask the questions that are needed, which is why did you mislead the American people and say there wasn't obstruction of justice? You're talking about Barr. Yes. Yeah. They need to ask those questions. Well, they could have had him, except they got bogged down on a silly 
issue of whether you, or not say the that. council could a- ask questions. Yeah. The members could have asked all those questions. But we're getting bogged down to the fact that he is the U.S. Attorney General. Yeah. The judiciary chair is asking you to come before the body to answer these questions. You work for the people. You don't work for him. So that means coming before this Congress, having an open, honest process. Put those details aside. The fact of the matter is you are a public servant. Attorney General Barr has to answer to the American people, not just to Trump. Let me ask you about how um, you see the people in your caucus who are with you on this, who support impeachment, uh, are thinking about it. Because I hear what you say when you say, you know, 10 million signatures and we'll get 10 million more. That may move a lot more Democrats into your corner. But at the end of the day, there's impeachment, but there's also the trial and conviction in the Senate to remove the president, right, I assume is your, your end goal. And that seems unlikely to happen with 10 you know, more, million more signatures. Everybody says that, but they said the same thing when Richard, when President Nixon came about with no Republican until that last moment. Until that last moment, it may have been the last recording, whatever it was. But the fact of the matter is they did their, they did their job. They, you know, they put country first. I, guess I just want us to look back at this moment, a right. pretty dark time in our country right now, where we do have a president that is acting above the law. It's pretty dangerous precedent to, to not hold him accountable, to not say, you're not allowed to do that. This is the United States of America. This is not how we do the, the work of the people. You have rule of law. When I look back in my 60s or 70s, I'm going to at least say that I put country first before party, before uh, leadership, before anybody. I spoke up when it was probably, you know, many people are like, well, you know, it's not that. Oh, I got to look at the polling and I'm not going to do that because, you know, in my core and every American out there, it's because they want to win against hate. They want to win against injustice. They want to win against a big bully that thinks that they can violate the United States Constitution and get away with it because they can't. Neither can I. And they just want to be able to feel like they're being heard and seen in this chamber. I want to look back and say that I hear them and I see them. And it's not just the 10 million signatures that we got, but it's all the 10 million that I know is out there that looks at this administration and said, our country is going around. Even the people that voted for him are now feeling the pain of the fact that we now have a crooked CEO in the Oval, Oval Office that thinks he's running a business and not a government. You mentioned the policies at the border as something, as a big issue for you. And I want to ask you uh, a question I asked your colleague, Congresswoman Ocasio Cortez, when she was on Skullduggery a few weeks ago. You, like her, were a Bernie Sanders supporter. And Bernie Sanders was asked, recently whether he supported open borders. And what he said is, what we need is comprehensive immigration reform. If you open the borders, my God, there's a lot of poverty in this world, and you're going to have people from all over the world, and I don't think that's something we can do at this point. Can't do it. Do you agree with him? Uh, Not fully. Uh, The one thing I know is this. We're creating a whole generation of children that are small, young teenagers a whole generation of children that are going to remember what we did to them. We're either going to remember that we tore them away from their parents, but it's important to say this, that we injected them with medicine to make them stop crying for their mothers, for their fathers, that we're creating this whole generation that will remember exactly what we did to them. But the And then when we look at these policies, the broken right. immigration system, you know, I, I practice immigration law. 
we look at the system and, and how it is now, the sense of all fits all, like open borders, so forth. I look at our relationship with Canada. I look at the fact that people from Canada can come in for 90 days. They can come out and, and easily work and then go back to Canada. We have 3,000 nurses alone in Detroit right. that come across that border to work in our hospitals because we have a shortage. But do you do you understand that to me is a, is a process that's fair and just and it's global and it's humane. And so when I look at, you know, the relationship we have with Canada, I think about the fact that, you know, we're always uplifting their economy. We're always trying to I mean, they're one of our uh, number one trade partners. We had 27 percent of trade comes across from Windsor into Detroit. And I I look at that and, you know, people want to call it whatever labels they want to call it. But I like humane, fair, just partnerships with our border communities. And if that means us trying to be equal in the way we treat some of the Canadians that come in, they have a 90-day waiver, they come in and tour, they come in and visit their families. The question is, should the immigration laws be enforced at the border when we have these families coming in from... But you're not listening. There is no immigration laws, because let me tell you, let me t- there is there no are line for asylum and they they're are not even following grounds. that, but they're, they're not, not following grounds. right now. It is legal to apply for asylum in our country and we're not abiding by our own laws. This right. is what the president of the United States. Again, this is not a dictatorship. We have these laws in place that we are a safe haven mm-hmm. and people that are fearing persecution that are fearing whatever they have every right to go through that legal process. So when people say to me, you know, trying to give these labels and what I understand my relationship with my huge, I mean, 20 different ethnicities in my district alone. I look at the fact that we're not being fair and just to our border communities and our relationship with Canada is healthy and fair and so forth. But you look at the relationship we have with our other border communities. And I think it's really, to me, that is what we need to be looking at and saying we need to adjust that. We need to look at that and and do it in a way that, again, supports you know, our humanity and the fact that people deserve human dignity. And we're not following immigration laws right now. Every single immigration attorney you ask in this country to the now, I can guarantee, will tell you the immigration system is completely deteriorated okay, and broken. We, I think we should move on to foreign policy. Yes, you're the first Palestinian-American woman to serve in Congress, uh, and you are organizing a trip to the West Bank during the uh, summer recess, I believe. First of all, how many members do you have who have agreed so, to go, and what do you want to yeah, show them? Yeah, so I think hum- your grandmother lives in the West Bank. Yeah, Humpty Dumpty Institute is right. organizing the trip. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be on the trip. I am eager to be part of the trip and being able to engage Palestinians, what I call community members without titles. I'm hoping that we engaging also Israelis, again, not government officials, not appointees, but actual people that live day to day with increasing inequality. You wouldn't uh, meet with any government, Israeli government officials or members of the parliament of the Knesset? Palestinian or Israeli, I think we want to actually look at the human impact. Mm -hmm. When I think about a town hall, you know, you don't get elected official. You, you want to talk to the people. And that's what I'm hoping this but trip is, you... is a massive town hall where we talk to uh, a woman that is, is working an integration of schools. I want to talk to the other organization that literally is about um, entrepreneurship, but between Israelis and Palestinians. I 
grew up in a city that is, you know, the most beautiful blackest city in the country, in the city of Detroit, and every corner is a reminder of the civil rights movement. I saw what oppression and inequality looks like. I saw that separate but equal doesn't work. And so for me, I want my colleagues to see a side that they can relate to, that they can see that this is not about choosing sides but choosing values. So if you start with that, then you might actually be able to look at this in the lens that is really truly fair. So Congresswoman, you've created something of a stir by coming out in favor of a one-state solution in Israel and Palestine. And I think you may be the only Democrat who's publicly supported a one-state solution. So what is your vision for a one-state solution that meets both Palestinian and Israeli or Jewish national aspirations? Absolutely. And let me tell you, I mean, for me, just a few, uh, I think two weeks ago or so, we celebrated or just it took a moment, I think, in our country to remember the Holocaust. And there's, you know, there's a kind of a calming feeling, I always tell folks, when I think of the Holocaust and the tragedy of the Holocaust and the fact that it was my ancestors, Palestinians, who lost their land and some lost their lives, their livelihood, the human dignity, their existence in many ways have been wiped out and some people's passport. I mean, just all of it was in the name of trying to create a safe haven for Jews post the Holocaust, post the tragedy and horrific persecution of Jews across the world at that time. And I love the fact that it was my ancestors that provided that, right, in many ways. But they did it in a way that took their human dignity away, right? And it was forced on them. And so when I think about a one state, I think about the fact that why couldn't we do it in a better way where and I don't want people to do it in the name of Judaism, just like I don't want people to use Islam in that way. It has to be done in a way of values around equality and around the fact that you shouldn't oppress others so that you can feel free and safe. Why can't we all be free and safe together? But a one-state solution with the right of return, I mean, just the math suggests that Jews would become a minority in that state. But Dan, it's not up to us to decide what it looks like, right? Just like when I have my African-American teachers taught me about neighborhoods they couldn't live in, taught me about places they couldn't work. But it's important to understand that separate but equal didn't work here, right? And we have to allow the self-determination to happen there. But for me, that's the lens I bring to it. But I'm not a leader there. But isn't it giving up to say uh, we're just going to the idea of a two-state solution with two independent states that are sovereign and, and independent but and free, I didn't, aren't you I didn't giving give it that up? up that I didn't dream? give it up. Netanyahu and his party gave it up. And the Israeli government gave it up. Because and it's not if, worth fighting for anymore. It's, it's, it, it's not me to decide. But just to be it's clear. It's the will of the people. If Netanyahu got up yesterday, tomorrow morning, and decides, you know what, I'm going to take down the walls. I'm going to, I'm going to, the settlement, I'm not going to expand settlements. Enough is enough. I really want to push towards two-state solution. He has every power every power to do that. And then people may, like myself and others, will truly believe in that. But uprooting people all over again to, to say that that's going to happen, because you understand when you look at the landscape and just map it out, it is almost absolutely impossible with how he has proceeded to divide, how he's proceeded to dissect and, and segregate communities, that it is impossible to, uh, for me to see a two-state solution without more people ha- being Look, hurt. The, the Palestinian Authority itself is still, uh, at least rhetorically, supports a two-state solution. Hamas does not. How do you distinguish your position from Hamas? Well, I don't come from a place of violence. I come from a place of love and equality and justice. 
you know, this is for many of these organizations, it's about power struggle, but that's why it's important in this trip that we talk to real people that are living it every day, not the people in power that obviously want to continue to fight. And they may feel in their own right that it's justified. And you hear them and you, you, you can see the sincerity from, from those that have supported the kind of approach that Netanyahu has taken towards Palestinians and then vice versa. But, you know, I can hear this kind of tension. And the thing is, I'm one person that grew up in a black community that saw what inequality and oppression looks like. You and know- to me, that's how I was raised. And now I'm a Palestinian uh, American Congress member. And you're telling me to wipe that out and change it and look at it from a different lens. And how can I do that? How can I say to my grandmother in her face that she doesn't deserve human dignity, that she is less than because she's not of Jewish faith, that she grew, she was born a different ethnicity, a different faith, whatever it is that people want to label her as. And I keep saying to people, how is that not wrong? How is it that we're not saying to ourselves, when are we going to create a place that's safe for everybody in the state of Israel and in the Palestinian occupied territories? Well, last question so I, on this. I just, I just really think it's important for people to understand that I can't dissect or completely take that lens off when I look at the two lines and look at the different color license plates and the fact that Palestinians can't get on the same bus as Israelis, it's ridiculous. There are extremists on both sides who also are in favor of a one-state solution, which would be expelling the Arabs or expelling the Jews. So aren't you playing with fire by supporting a one-state solution? I'm coming from a place of love for equality and justice. I truly am. I want a safe haven for Jews. Who doesn't want to be safe? I am humbled by the fact that it was my ancestors that had to suffer for that to happen. But I will not turn my back and allow others to hijack it and say that it's some extremism approach because they're coming from a place of whatever it is of division, inequality. But you know, if you look at Netanyahu, he is the first person to come out and support President Trump's wall. That is not the kind of leadership. When I, when I look at people pushing back and saying, what about this? And I said, until I actually see people moving towards that, moving towards desegregating, moving towards like this kind of type of oppression and, and making people feel less than, then maybe they would have some sort of credibility with somebody like myself that grew up in Detroit, where we can smell it from a far away that, no, you don't want to look at my grandmother in the eye, Netanyahu, and say, you are equal to me. You are as human as I am to you. And yes, you deserve to die with human dignity. Well, here on Skullduggery, we like to end on mm-hmm. notes of love. So <laughs> thank you for your time, Congressman. Appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you. We now have with us the esteemed Peter Baker, Chief White House Correspondent for the New York Times. Peter, welcome to Skullduggery. Hey, thanks. I think esteem is a synonym for old, right? <laughs> well, the season. Been around, it's been around too damn we're long. We're all esteemed on Skullduggery. <laughs> Just so hold up the book, Mike. Yeah, hold wanna, up the book. We want to talk about your new, expanded, yeah. updated version of Obama, the call of history. Yeah. But before we get to that, I just yeah. want to ask you about this new White House press pass yeah. policy. Yeah. Uh, apparently, a lot of people have had their press credentials put in, into question. Yeah. So what's going on? So what they did was they put a new policy, and this is after Jim Acosta from CNN had his credential mm-hmm. pulled, and the court said, wait, you can't do that. You have to have a system. So they put in a system. And the system, of course, is one that's not advantageous to the reporters. Surprise, surprise. And their system is that if you don't go to the White House 
90 days out of every 180 days, includes weekends, includes holidays, then you don't qualify. You're no longer entitled to have a White House press patch. Well, the truth is most newspaper reporters, most uh, news magazine reporters, most reporters other than the TV and wire people who work physically on the premises every day don't tend to go as often, particularly now there's not mm-hmm. briefings, but we still need access to the building so we don't qualify under this thing. But they have been giving exceptions basically, to everybody who they think is a, is a regular reporter. Is a they, real reporter yeah. and not a fake news reporter. Right, and to their credit, they have yeah. given exceptions from everybody that I know of, except for Daniel Bank, for the most part, who are, in fact, genuinely White House reporters. They have not picked and cho- chosen. But the problem is that they could. It means that because all of us are in violation of this policy, we live on the sufferance of the press office. So you, you know, so I got to say, I, sword I think this is of a, Damocles yeah, is hanging over I think this is a here. counterproductive yeah. strategy. I think they should want you there yeah. all the time because then you wouldn't be out doing actual reporting. No, that's really right. What everyone knows these days is, first of all, they don't have briefings, right? right? Those have effectively ended. Right. When they do, all it is is spinning, obfuscation, and, dare I say, lying. Yeah. So, you know, that's, I mean, I think that is the bigger issue. Well, and you can't, we ought to be you guys on. know this. You don't walk around the White House and just sort of see something on somebody's desk, right? You can't just run into sources and, and find out secret information. You're literally only getting the stuff that they want to put out if you're physically at the White House. And yet, you know, as reported, that's something you need to be there for at times, and to not have that access would be a real problem. And being able to ask the questions and ask holding question. people accountable right, yeah, is right. an important part of the job. All right, Absolutely. let's talk about Obama, The Call of History, yeah. which is a book you came out with last year, yeah. right, with the photographer. It was a picture book. It was, it was a coffee table book right, right. that the New York Times put out as a bookend to one we had done at the beginning of his presidency. And it was right. filled with terrific pictures by our great staff. But it had some text in it. And let's face it, who reads the text of a picture book? (laughs) (laughs) So we decided to take that text. We basically doubled it in size and made it into a regular book. So we have a different different book I want to start out, particularly the the last couple of chapters and the um, afterward, where you talk about the last months of the Obama presidency. The scene where he meets with Trump. Yeah a few days after the election. That's so fascinating. They came out of the meeting talking, oh, it was a great meeting, but Obama then goes back and tells his aides what took place during that meeting. Yeah, and it's so interesting. They had never met before, right? Really? The entire time, they had never one time met. They'd been in the same room. They were close together. In the White House Correspondents' Dinner, right? Yeah. right. Awkward fun. meeting of Obama sorts. Obama makes right. fun of him from the podium. Trump is seething in the audience. Until then, they had never met. And yet, obviously, their lives, their politics have been now kind of intertwined, particularly in the last few years. One of them calling the other one, a, you know, the birther movement and the right. other thing. So uh, to sit down there in the Oval Office, President Obama was trying to do the same thing that had done that George W. Bush had done for him, which is to have a gracious transition, despite the fact that they had different points of view. But here in this meeting, that just the two of them, he found you know this this very perplexing figure in front of him who was more interested in talking about the crowd size. You know, Hillary couldn't get a crowd. You and I can get a crowd, but that Hillary, she couldn't do it. And you know, Obama yeah. scratching his head. He said he wants to talk about North Korea. He wants to talk yeah. about these really important right. issues. His, his the line that you quote him saying coming out of the meeting was interested. I don't know how to place him in history. Yeah, I don't know how to place him in history, right? And then yeah. Ben Rhodes, his aide, says, well, he's like you know, if we've seen this character through throughout American history. It's like in Huckleberry Finn. You see this kind of, you know, this, you know, fraudster in effect. Con man. Con man is the way they put it. And Obama calls him a cartoon figure. Cartoon figure. And and, and you can, you know, imagine. I mean, Obama's a profoundly serious person. There's lots 
you can agree on or disagree on about Obama, but he takes this stuff seriously. And he sees in Trump somebody who is all about the show and yeah. all about the theatrics and, and the stuff that, that Obama thinks is fake and false about Washington anyway. And so for him to sit down with Donald Trump as his successor is a profoundly, you know... Uh, uh, well, he's a mirror image in so oh, many yeah, ways. I mean, yeah. I guess that happens often. There's the president who follows two-term presidents end up being the opposite. But so Obama uh, kind of maintains his respectful silence uh, right. for a period of time in the way that George W. Bush did. But then he goes through something of an evolution, and he comes out swinging in 2018. What was that evolution like, and what, he had, what does he end up doing? I think there are two things. One, he wanted to, to he, he liked that George W. Bush didn't make his life more difficult by speaking out as an ex-president. He liked that as a model, and so he tried to respect that. And secondly, I think he thought that if he had spoken out much before, then he made himself into the issue, and he made himself a target for Trump, and Trump likes a target. And so rather than being about the issue of health care, about the issue of tax cuts or whatever, the issue would be Barack Obama. He didn't want that. But by the time the midterm comes around, he just felt like, I think, that he had to. He just couldn't hold in any longer. And there was no Democratic leader, right? Who is the de leader of the Democrats right now who would get out there and take that fight to him in the midterm elections? There really isn't anybody. It wasn't anybody who's sort of a consensus figure. And so he decided to get out there. And he did it in a way that no other former president really has done since, I think, around Herbert Hoover. Herbert Hoover was very vocal hmm. after he left office. But he, he took it to him. He said that the president was lying. He said that uh, uh, he criticized him for uh, his policies, very specific policies. He said that he represented uh, a lot of the worst elements of American life, and in a way that you don't really see among this sort of president's club very often. Well, I assume that Obama saw what a lot of us have seen, which is that Trump seems singularly focused on undoing everything that yeah. Obama did, yeah. both on foreign policy and domestic policy, right. health care, Iran deal, you name it. Exactly. If, if Obama did it, he was going to undo it and do the opposite. Right. You know, the other part of your reporting here that's so fascinating is in that post-election period, how much Obama and his folks blamed Hillary Clinton yeah, for yeah. the defeat. Now, I'm just going to read a few lines from the book. To Obama and his team, however, the real blame for Trump's election lay squarely with Clinton. She was the one who could not translate his strong record and healthy economy into a winning message. Never mind that Trump essentially ran the same playbook against Clinton that Obama did eight years earlier, portraying her as a corrupt exemplar of the status quo. She brought many of her troubles on herself. No one forced her to underestimate the danger in the Midwest states of Wisconsin and Michigan. No one forced her to set up a private email server that would come back to haunt her. Yeah. Part of this is defensive, right? They're feeling defensive. Well, why would the country elect this guy, Donald Trump, if you're so good, right? Mm -hmm. And, and if, what happened to Russia? Why is it you guys didn't do more on Russia? So part of this is defensive. Part of this is like, hey, don't blame us. And then I think there is a genuine critique and a genuine uh, sourness about the way Hillary Clinton had run her campaign. Not unusual, right? Bill Clinton thought Al Gore ran a terrible campaign to succeed him. I mean, that's, this goes with the territory. But they thought that she ran a scripted, soulless campaign. Remember, she came up with that slogan, Stronger Together. They had 85 slogans that they tested by a focus group before they came up with that, right? I don't know how many slogans that Trump tested before make America great, but it actually worked for him. It works for him yeah. because it seemed authentic to him. And right. in Hillary's case, Hillary Clinton's case, it felt like it was just, you know, one more Madison Avenue, you know, focus group rather than something You know, real. there's something a, a little kind of contradictory in the way Obama talks about uh, some of these things I wanted to ask you about in terms of laying the foundation for the rise of Trump, because 
On the one hand, you suggest that uh, he doesn't really take any responsibility for it. But on the other hand, he does seem to admit to some self-doubt and uh, sort of ask himself, did we push too far? Yeah. Uh, did we not realize that people would just revert back to their tribes right. um, and, you know, the whole kind of identity issue? So talk about that a little bit. I mean, look, it's, not, it's self-doubt to some extent, but it's not self-doubt in the sense that we made the wrong choices. It's that we were too good and people right. didn't understand right. how good we were, right? right? There is right. something to that that's, argument, that's, right? that's Obama's self-doubt. That's, yeah, that's right. Obama's version of self-doubt. We came along too soon, we pushed too hard, meaning we pushed too hard for good things and people didn't really get what we were doing. I was 10 to 20 years ahead of my time. I was 10 to 20 years ahead of my time. That's what he was talking about. Yeah, exactly. And it reminds me, I I interviewed him once right before the midterms in 2010 when they were about to take their shellacking. And his interpretation of the problem, his diagnosis was, we were bad at communicating all the great things we're doing. And Robert Gibbs, I asked him, he was the press secretary, he says, yeah, I've been to a lot of communication problems meeting. I've never been to a policy problem meeting. You know I mean? It's always when a politician gets in trouble that they just didn't tell everybody how great they were. And so there's something, you know, it's hard, I think, for a president to look back and think, well, did we actually do the right thing? And I think probably in the heart of hearts, he, he thinks that there are some things he did wrong. But it's, it's uh, um, largely, I think he believes in, in what he did. And, and, you know, his people think he has good reason to. How much self-doubt about the way they responded or didn't respond to the Russian interference in the election. I mean, you know this probably better than I do. There's a lot of self-doubt, I think, among his people. There's, there were people who, at the time, very vocally said, we need to be more active, we need to get out there, you know, we need to make, put statements out, we need to be more assertive and yeah. uh, exposing what's going on. And uh, Obama's reasoning is understandable in some sense. He thought that that would only play into Trump's hand by looking like he was putting his finger I, on the If on I the speak scale. out more, he'll just say it's rigged. Exactly. Right. But there's right. another... And, di- they, and right. they thought she was going to win. But there's another yeah. dynamic here, which I think you write about elsewhere in the book, and I wrote about in my book, uh, about his decision-making. And there is this kind of, you know, the professorial, very thoughtful, and kind of cautious instincts. Right. I think the line in your book is, you know, something about uh, don't do stupid shit rule. Right. Which kind of drives him in, in a lot of ways, and there is a kind of a dithering quality yeah. to uh, how he ran the government. Isn't that an element here, that oh, he yeah. just, that, that cautiousness? It's, it's, it was maddening to some of his own aides who wanted him to kind of like sit up and actually be decisive from time to time. And it's not that he wasn't bold, obviously. There were moments when he was clearly very bold as, in his presidency. But if Osama could, bin Laden. Osama bin Laden. But even there, it took six months. Yeah. We just didn't see the six months. Yeah, right, right? right. So it seemed bolder, I think, to us because suddenly oh, we're presented with the end of the story rather than the six months that led up to it. He takes his time. He doesn't want to make mistakes. He views George W. Bush's presidency as the opposite of what he wanted to do, where in his view, it was all quick, itchy, trigger finger kind of stuff. Probably, again, a too cartoonish version of that. But his version was it's very possible that whatever action we take will make things worse, not better. So not jumping into things is the safer course. Right. But, you know, from the perspective of today, where we realize just how wide ranging and massive the Russian attack was, it doesn't look so good from the eyes of history. Inaction is a choice as well, right? Choosing not to do something is a choice. And 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 blaming it on, well, Mitch McConnell wouldn't go along, that seems well, like... Know, I can understand know. why that would be frustrating to them, and it's true, Mitch yeah. McConnell wouldn't go along. But, and, but, but you're the president. But you're the president, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And at some point, do you have a responsibility that's not hostage to congressional opposition? Mm. And he didn't. I mean, he did a couple of things. He talked to Putin about it. He, he warned him in private. 
right? They, uh, they did put out a statement on October 7th in the name of some right. the, the lower level people, not the president. But right. You know, in all the reporting I've, I've read on this, you wrote about it in, in mm-hmm. your book, in your account, Peter. Actually, who supported him on, on this? I mean, it seems to me that just about everybody thought that he should come out. I think most people thought he should come out, and he was really, it was him. I think, you know, you can't blame other people. Now, there are people around who enable his instincts, right, who don't push very hard. It's, it's, it's hard to get in the Oval Office and put your finger in the president's face and say, you're wrong, you know, yeah. get off the pot. But I think broadly, this is him. So his uh, vice president, uh, Joe Biden, is now running for president, something he didn't want him to do last time around. That's very interesting. Tell us about that and tell us what you think he's going to do, Obama's going to do this Mm. time with Biden seeming to sort of take a commanding lead right now in the polls. Yeah, so interesting, right? The what Mm -hmm. if game has been played by Democrats for two and a half years now. What if Joe had been the nominee? The president thought... Two things. One, he'd already made the calculation in his mind that Hillary Clinton was the strongest candidate to succeed him. And he'd already basically gone all in on her. I mean, his people were starting to work for her. He had publicly embraced her without a formal endorsement. So by the time Biden comes along kind of belatedly, the, in his view, we've already set the table here. Why are we removing the dishes around? Secondly, I think he really genuinely thought that Biden was not in the right place emotionally. His Bo son voted Exactly. And he was just so consumed with grief that he... what. President Obama saw in front of him was a vice president who was not up for the ordeals of a national marathon and, and campaign. That, and that became a genuine friendship, right? Because uh, you know, so. when it started, uh, you know, I think Obama was irritated and yeah. annoyed at Biden for running his mouth in meetings right. and being too garrulous. But it sounds like that did evolve into a genuine friendship. I think it did, actually, which is interesting, right? Because they're so different. We talk about differences. It's not Trump-Obama difference, but it's it's pretty different, right? And I think that they did eventually grow into a friendship. And when, in fact, Bo Biden was dying, Obama was one of the very few people that Joe Biden confided in. And at the funeral, uh, Barack Obama, famous Mr. Spock, stoic, robotic figure, is, is, you know, really very emotional himself and calls Joe Biden my brother. And I think that, you know, bonded them a little bit. Do you see an endorsement? I don't. I mean, what Obama has told people is he's not going to do that, that having a healthy having a fight in the primary uh, is a healthy thing for the party. He did put out a statement saying nice things about Biden on the day of his announcement, pointedly not endorsing him. And look, there are other Obamas out there. Right. Is Joe Biden really the natural inheritor of of Barack Obama? Maybe, maybe not. People look at Pete Buttigieg and Beto O'Rourke and say these new generation guys seem more like Obama. And I don't get the sense that Obama world that they're all lining up to back Joe Biden. No, I think most of them are drifting off to other candidates. Right. And they they like and respect Joe. Sure. Mostly not all, but mostly. I just think that they don't think that it's the right time for him. You've covered how many presidents now? Four presidents. What is it like to cover the Trump presidency? (laughs) (laughs) I used to think that all presidents actually were more alike than not. That with a few exceptions here or there, that they that there were more similarities than yeah. than not, and and Trump broke that for me. I yeah. no longer think that <laughs> it's so different on every level. But I mean, uh-huh. how do you do it? I mean, you know, here we have a president who says things that you know, by any standard are preposterous, yeah. as do his aides. Uh, yeah. It just. <laughs> 
day to day sorting through the bullshit and <laughs> figuring out what you can put in the New York Times. I'm just we now use I, the word bullshit in the New York Times. On by the way, page. we have never and, done you know this is fucked. new new yeah. <laughs> new levels yeah. of whatever. Right. Usually in quotes, I hope to yeah. add. We don't usually use them ourselves. Yeah, it's different and it's it's a challenge because look, it's our job as journalists to hold people in power accountable. But it's not our job to be the opposition, right? right? And treading that line is really hard. And if you sit there and call him out on every single right. thing he says it, that's challengeable, then you got to be careful about looking like you're nya nya, like, you know, yeah. blah, blah, blah. At the same time, you can't let him get away with yeah, stuff I mean, that's so it, palpably untrue. That, right? It seems like the, to me the challenge is there's this danger of him being graded on a curve. Yeah. And that at a certain point, if he doesn't say something, you know, he has to keep saying things like more outrageous and yeah. going to 11 before it becomes news. That's because true. news, by definition, is what's new. Yeah. So that's a challenge. Oh, my God. Every single day he does things. Every single day he does things that no other president that I've covered would have done. And had they done it, would have been big front page stories for a week. And we sometimes cover it and sometimes we don't because, as you say, he does so many of them. Do you think he wants to get impeached? <laughs> I don't think he wants to get impeached, but I don't think he minds the battle. I don't think he minds the battle. I mean, I think the battle is what th he thrives on. And so in that sense, yeah, go ahead, impeach me. Bring it on. I, I, yeah. I do. I think, he, I think his strategy right now is to dare them in a way to do it. Put up or shut up. Impeach or move on. And because he knows he's got the votes. It's easy to say that in the sense that you know you have the votes in the Senate. There's no sign that 20 Republican senators are ready to break with right. him. That could change. I'm not saying it couldn't. Mm -hmm. But let's face it, at the moment, I can't name one who's a probable vote for conviction. So he has a certain security right. in daring them to do it. And his calculation is it would work against them and for him. And what else do you want to tell your base? You want to tell your base that they're coming to get me. The deep state, the establishment, the Democrats, the FBI guys, all these guys don't want me there because I'm for you. And it's a pretty salient message for the people who like him. I got one last okay. Obama question. <laughs> yeah. So he's been out of office for two and a half years now. Yeah. You're a historian now. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> the question you don't want to be asked at this point, what do you think his legacy is going to be? Well, look, you know, we're going to rewrite it multiple times. This is a first take on it. There'll be <laughs> many, many other books. There's no question the first line is Obed is still going to be first African-American president. It's still the most extraordinary thing about him in, a, in the large context of a 225-year history. But it will also be that he, you know, came along at a time of extraordinary crisis and brought the country back from the economic abyss, that he tried to do things with health care and, and climate change and immigration and so forth, some of which were successful, some of which were reversed by his successor. And I think that his, you know, I think it will be seen as a corrective in some ways to what happened with George W. Bush, just like some people will look at Trump as a corrective for Obama. But I think broadly speaking, Trump makes him look better in terms of, you know, his numbers are higher. He's much more popular today than he ever was, not ever, much more popular than most of the time he was in office. People think of him and say, well, gosh, you know, I might not have agreed him with everything, but he was, you know, he's a decent person. There was no scandal. It wasn't you know, trying to profit off of his office. He wasn't this and that. So I think that um, that has helped him on some on some level. We'll see where this, you know, this FBI gate kind of stuff goes. If the country becomes convinced that he was somehow behind something political and in, in this investigation, that might change. Yeah, I do. I do views. think the uh, that Justice Department Inspector General report is going to be uh, really very important. important. Really yeah, important in yeah. setting the setting the baseline yeah. for how we're it's supposed to think about this. It's either going to support this. Trump's narrative or it's right. going to undercut it. 
Exactly. But, you know, huge. Uh, but anyway, Peter, thanks for joining us. Congratulations on the book. Thank you very much. I noticed, it. by the way, there are no pictures. In there are no, no pictures. pictures. You could have had like we a happy totally medium the opposite. <laughs> no, no, we're just going. This I guess that means you got to buy them both. Got to buy them both. <laughs> right. That's right. They're a companion set. <laughs> thanks, Peter. Take thanks care. for having me. Thanks to Rashida Tlaib and Peter Baker for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. And now you can watch the podcast on yahoonews.com, YouTube, and Roku, Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.